Hey everybody, this is Hunter Williams. Today is going to be episode 89 of the NeuroEdge podcast. Today's episode, we are again going to do a breakdown of things. What's on tap for today? We've got fluoride, smartphones and IQ, blue blocking glasses, EMF, and fractional reserve banking. Maybe I'm going to get banned from talking about these topics, but they are things that I want to talk about. And again, how does this help with your health? Well, a lot of these are going to relate back to your health and wellness, but then also just general awareness of what's going on around you. And I think whether you are looking to improve your health or just improve your knowledge of what is going on around us in the system level, there are a couple of things I want to talk about and just have been reading about lately and love to share my knowledge with all of the listeners. So again, NeuroEdge, not only are we going to be talking about your body, but then also how can we have a mental edge in society and how we carry on our lives and everything. So hopefully this is interesting to you, and I look forward to hearing your guys' feedback about how you enjoy this new format and everything. And don't forget to leave comments on this stuff because I am going to intertwine Q&A on everything with this. So please leave your comments. Let me know your feedback about what you think and how I can make this better going forward for you as the audience, because that is what I am here for. And that's what I love doing is bringing this stuff to you guys and talking about it more. So, and as always, don't forget to head on over to the Facebook group. I know I am putting this in the Facebook group, but if you are not a member of that, there's some really cool stuff that goes on the inside there. So if you would like to have dialogue more about these topics, what you think about them, how you can make your life better and overall become the best version of yourself, head over onto that group. And again, it's a little bit more for insiders only. So this resonates with you. Check that out. All right, let's, let's get into it. So what is going to be number one on the tap? Well, these are some things that I have been thinking about lately. And like I did last time, I'm going to share my screen. So let's pull this up. Trying to make it bigger for everybody. There we go. Alrighty, so let's get on into it. So what I want to talk about first is fluoride. And this is something that has been kind of on my mind lately. And I just want to talk about it. So if you have never checked out this website, it's called Global Healing Center by Dr. Group. And I am a huge fan of their products that they have, just because I know he has a thing called Detoxidine, which is an iodine supplement, which has really helped me just in my overall health journey. What it does is it helps detox a lot of heavy metals out of your system. Then also helps with thyroid gland function, which is going to help a lot with metabolism and everything. But one of the reasons you should be taking iodine is because we are exposed to so much fluoride in the world today. And I think fluoride, whether it's in our water systems, toothpaste, all these different toxins that we have, is something that you want to make sure you're steering clear of. I don't really see the benefit when you start to look at all the different negatives that you'll get from it. And I know there's the argument that some people will make that it's good for your teeth or whatnot because it's a lot of toothpastes. Well, that's not a risk I want to take when you start to look at all the disadvantages you're going to get from it. So what I want to do in this, he has an article that he wrote on his website, 
talking about the dangers of fluoride exposure. And what I wanted to do is just walk through some of those. So what does fluoride do? Well, again, he says it's contentious mostly because exposure is everywhere. Not only is it a common ingredient in toothpaste, but it is in many municipalities' water supply. Um, so it's, again, in a bunch of different places and something you really want to make sure you're on guard against. So what does it do? Well, number one, it weakens skeletal health. So skeletal fluorosis is a condition resulting from fluoride consumption. The liver is unable to process fluoride, thus it passes into the bloodstream where it combines with calcium that's been leached from the skeletal system. So you're left with weak bones, otherwise known as skeletal fluorosis. This risk has been around for decades. It's not been established how much exposure will trigger skeletal fluorosis and the impact. Quality of life is obviously horrendous. Now, don't need to go any further than that, but if you look at a lot of people as they age, especially women, they get osteoporosis of their bones, osteoarthritis, all these things, and whether or not fluoride is a cause, I'm not saying that, but definitely doesn't help contribute. So there's that. Number two, it causes arthritis. Again, obviously a huge problem for people as they age. And even myself as someone that played sports for a long time, a lot of contact sports, it definitely took a toll on my wrists, my fingers, uh, elbows, shoulders, and different things like that. So I wouldn't say it's full-blown arthritis, but I know the pain and struggle of Having that, so fluoride has been shown to cause calcification of cartilage, the essential tissue for joint health, and degenerative osteoarthritis has been linked to skeletal fluorosis. So those kind of go hand in hand, like I was saying. The study of individuals suffering from fluorosis, osteoarthritis, knee conditions occurred frequently. So if you are experiencing things like that, consider is fluoride in something that you, is it something that you're ingesting regularly? Is it in your toothpaste? Are you filtering your water? Moving on, number three, and this is what I think is most damaging overall, is it's going to be toxic to the thyroid. So iodine fluoride belong to a family of compounds known as halogens. Although iodine is beneficial to the, to the thyroid, like I was talking about, fluoride is not. However, because of the similarities, the thyroid can absorb fluoride instead of iodine. So this is bad. Fluoride is toxic to thyroid cells and inhibits function and causes cell death. For decades, fluoride was used to reduce thyroid function in individuals suffering from an overactive thyroid. Now, the range used in water fluoridation matches the levels typically used to reduce thyroid function. So I'm going to say that again to kind of drill home the point. Fluoride was used to reduce thyroid function in individuals suffering from overactive thyroid. The range used in water that most tap water is used to have in fluoride typically is used in the same two reduce overactive thyroid. So think about that. And again, the thyroid function is gonna affect a bunch of things like metabolism, and that kind of trickles down to the rest of your health. And as you see, metabolism is gonna affect a lot of times how much weight you have on if you're obese, and that is going to affect all the other areas that may be causing chronic disease in your life. So again, I actually talked about some recent episode, but it calcifies the ultra important pineal gland. Although the full capabilities of the pineal gland have been subject of debate for centuries, again, it's known in the third eye in a lot of ancient traditions, it's known for certain that at a minimum, the pineal gland regulates body rhythms and wake-sleep cycles, again, through the production of melatonin. So fluoride is especially toxic to the pineal gland where it accumulates and calcifies the gland. In fact, by the time the average person reaches old age, their pineal gland will have higher calcium density than their bones. Wow, that's kind of scary. So again, I'm not here to say was this mastermind by design or not? That's not the topic for this episode. Just be aware that this is a reaction to fluoride. So 
you want healthy pineal gland function, make sure that you are eliminating fluoride because it's going to affect the function for pineal gland, which a lot of people will claim is the doorway in doorway into spiritual realms around it. So number five, it accelerates female puberty. So it also deserves mention that the pineal gland plays an integral in the onset of puberty. Research has shown that girls living in areas prone to more fluoride exposure experience puberty earlier than girls exposed to less. So fluoride's damaging effects on sexual function only begins there. Again, number six, not only for females, but males is harmful to male and female fertility. So a direct link exists between fertility rates and fluoridated drinking water. High levels of fluoride correspond to lower fertility rates, particularly with drinking levels of three parts per million. Animal models also show that fluoride reduces reproductive hormones in females, um, and in men just have it have it just as bad as it can affect testosterone levels, which again, lots of stuff can, but you want to make sure you're doing everything you can, especially in today's age. Number seven is bad for kidney health. So fluoride is toxic to the kidneys, and at a higher rate of chronic kidney disease has been reported in areas where the water contains high levels of fluoride. Again, you want to make sure your kidneys are functioning properly. And according to Chinese research of researchers, a fluoride level of two milligrams per liter is all it takes to cause renal damage in children. Again, really scary stuff. This is not just, you know, like eating junk food. This is something that is very toxic. Research suggests that exposure to fluoride causes cardiovascular inflammation and atherosclerosis, which is just another word for heart disease. Other research has examined its effect on blood pressure, but has mixed results. Um, again, what came first, the chicken or the egg? All I know is I'm going to <laughs> stay away from it. And again, number nine, negative cognitive effects. The Florida Action Net Network reports that as of May 2013, 43 studies have examined the effect of fluoride on human intelligence. The results should motivate anyone to minimize their fluoride exposure again. So may not be what you were thinking about before I started this episode, but it goes back to our brain function. Another is that children living in highly fluoridated areas have up to five times greater chance of developing a low IQ compared to those who do not. So again, really scary stuff. Again, please, if you can, make sure that you are eliminating from your diet or different household products like toothpaste that you may use and also through water. And you want to make sure you are filtering your water just like I'm drinking right here. All right. Let's move along to my next one, number two. So Cal Newport is a really awesome guy. He has an awesome blog. I actually just started listening to his podcast recently. He has really great books that I've read, but he recently started a podcast. And I was like, let me go through his stuff and see if there's something that I can draw because he just has so many great points. And he has this really cool article that he wrote a couple months back. And it says, do smartphones make us dumber? A reader recently pointed to me, and again, this is reading from his blog. So the reader recently pointed him towards an intriguing article published in 2017 in the Journal for the Association of Consumer Research. It was titled Brain Drain, the Mere Presence of One's Own Smartphone Reduces Available Cognitive Capacity. So in this paper, this is what happened. The authors of the paper report the results of a straightforward experiment. Subjects are invited into a laboratory to participate in some assessment exercises. Before commencing, however, they're asked to put their phones away. Some subjects are asked to place their phone on the desk next to the computer. Some are told to put their phone in their bag and some are told to put their phone in the other room. So again, you have an experiment they're doing. Some people have their phone on their desk some people have it in their bag, which I'm guessing was probably below the desk. And then other people have their phone outside of the room. Each subject was then subjected to a battery of standard cognitive capacity tests. And as a result, subjects measured notably lower on working memory capacity and food intelligence when the phone 
was next to them on the desk versus out of sight. This was true even though all the cases of the subject didn't actually use their phone. So again, it doesn't matter if they're using them or not. Simply the presence of the phone is affecting memory capacity and intelligence. The mere presence of the device sat cognitive resources. The effect was particularly pronounced on those who self-reported to be heavy phone users. I think we were only scratching the surface of damage caused by our current technology habits says Cal Newport. And uh, again, these things are tools that you wanna make sure that you're using to your advantage and not causing you to have lower intelligence. And I feel guilty of this myself sometimes because I get, you. I mean, with, whether it's work or whatever, you get tied into your phone and then you, get, you escape the real world. Kind of what this study proves is, is that even when your phone's around you, your brain is recognizing that's an incredible, Increased thing that is causing anxiety. So you want to make sure that one, when you go to bed, re remove your phone from the room. Subconsciously, when your phone is there, it's affecting your brain capacity and the anxiety that your brain has because of what it's expecting to come from the phone. And I want to make the delineation between like our biological vehicles that we have ourselves and what the phone is actually doing. So our biological vehicles are looking for something that can cause us harm at any time. And whether that's a micro harm, like an email that we might get from someone that causes us to have stress at work or whether it's something really serious, the phone is the interface through which we're getting that. And when it's closer to you, our body subconsciously is recognizing that there's going to be more problems and it's taking up space in our brain. So again, if you want to be creative, if you want to be intelligent, if you want to live healthy, happy, and vibrantly as much as you can, try to get away from your phone. And I know, again, that's not possible to some extent, depending on your job, but just be conscious of it because there are actions you can take in your life to try to make it better. So moving along to something else related to how we are intertwined with technology and everything. So blue blocking glasses. And I recently got these blue blocking glasses from Best Buy. They're actually a lot better than some of the other ones that I had. But I came across this. So I talked to a doctor named Dr. Adam Meredith on my podcast. I'll have to go back and look at the episode number to see who that was, but he was showing me, and I can't remember if it was on the podcast or after the podcast, the importance of wearing blue blocking glasses. And you can actually measure by looking at a screen and seeing how you see the colors on the screen when you're looking at blue blocking. Well, he had me do it. And on the screen, I looked at mine and I noticed that the ones that I have were barely working. So I went and got these and these are working fine. But I wanted to see, do blue blocking glasses, is there actually scientific study to back them up? Or is it something, because I've just always kind of taken it from what I've listened to on podcasts and different things. I've just kind of taken it verbatim and said, yeah, I know that the screen is probably harming my eyes. I need to make sure that I'm doing something. But I wanted to dig into the research a little bit more and at least have some tangible evidence. So I went on PubMed, which again is just an open source place where you can look at studies and everything. And I found this study was done in, let's see, 2015, so a little bit of a while ago. And the thesis was blue blocker glasses as a countermeasure for alerting effects of evening light, emitting diode screen exposure in male teenagers. So the purpose of this study was to kind of use it for teenagers. I'll skip a lot of the jargon part, but basically is this. Compared with clear lenses, blue blocker lenses significantly attenuated LED-induced melatonin suppression in the evenings and decreased vigilant attention and subjective alertness before bedtime. Visually scored sleep stages and behavioral measures collected the morning after were not modified. 
So the conclusion is that blue blocking glasses may be useful in adolescence as a countermeasure for alerting effects induced by light exposure through LED screens, which most of us are using, and therefore potentially impede the negative effects of modern lighting imposes on circadian physiology in the evening. So all that said, yes, blue blocking glasses work. Is it better to be off of a screen? Absolutely. You do not want to be on a screen leading up to bed again because it goes back to the anxiety thing with the phone. And again, I know I am guilty of that much as uh, I'm as guilty of that as anybody, but I just wanted to throw that out there so you had a understanding of it and understand that if it is something, especially if you're a high performer, you're in a job role where you may have to be looking at the screen up until the time that you go to bed. Again, this isn't to say you should be watching Netflix. If I mean, if you are where your blue blockers too, but you know, take all of this into consideration. And again, it will help and it does affect or help affect melatonin levels, at least according to this study, which was published in Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. So evidence there, if you need it, or if you ever see somebody with blue blocking glasses and say, hey, what that guy's a tool, he's wearing blue blocking glasses. Actually, it is helping. Am I defending myself? I don't know. <laughs> but let's move along. So EMF. And this is a whole rabbit hole that I could go down for a long time. But basically what I want to do is just give it a surface level overview of how EMF affects the body and what it's doing to us. So and this was a good learning experience for me, even someone that is into this and reads about this a lot. I just wanted to look at what are the actual biological effects of EMF, which comes from Wi-Fi, cell phones, all this good stuff, so to speak. So what happens? Well, here are some of the biological changes caused by electromagnetic radiation as observed and reported in various studies. And it's a little bit of a dated article, but it still rings true today. So it actually causes protein changes in skin. So 10 women volunteered to participate in a study in which radiation at 900 megahertz from GSM cell phones was applied to them for one hour to stimulate or simulate a phone call. Scientists then screened their skin cells for any stress reactions. They looked at 580 different proteins and found two of which were substantially affected. One was increased by 89% and another increased by 32%. They also excited brain cells. So researchers from, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, but somewhere, found the electromagnetic field emitted by cell phones because some cells in the brain's cortex, which are adjacent to the phone used when you have your phone next, next to your ear, to become excited for about an hour while others become inhibited. inhibited. And again, this leads to negative long-term effects. And moving along, DNA damage. I think this, in my opinion, is one of the biggest things. So German research group Virum studied the effect of radiation on human and animal cells. And after being exposed to cell phone frequencies, the cell phone showed increased breaks in their DNA. These DNA breaks could not always be repaired by the cells. The damage would therefore be past the future cells, which could predispose them to becoming, you guessed it, cancerous. So, again, we look at a lot of the things we do in health, mitochondrial function and DNA function. We want to make sure that we're priming our body for those things to be healthy. EMF, the biggest thing that it's going to cause is this mitochondrial distress and the damage and breaking of DNA, which again could lead to things like cancer. Next one, brain cell damage, a study of the effects of cell phone frequencies applied at non-thermal intensity on rat brains showed damage to neurons in various brain parts, including the cortex, hippocampus, and basal ganglia. Again, neuro edge in your brain. You want to make sure you're protecting it. So again, EMF is going to be something that you want to stick away from. Aggressive growth in leukemia cells. Researchers at the National Research Council in Italy found that leukemia cells exposed to cell phone frequencies for 48 hours replicated more aggressively. And 
Last but not least, increased blood pressure. Again, you go back to cardiovascular disease. Researchers in Germany found that one-time use of a cell phone for 35 minutes could cause an increase in resting blood pressure of between 5 and 10 um, whatever millimeters per unit, whatever they use to measure blood pressure. So, um, again, this article just says, you know, it may appear the low, low frequency and radio frequency must be harmless to humans unless it is so strong that it heats our tissue or damages molecules in some other way. Um, a lot of scientists still aren't buying into this, and you can kind of take it for yourself which ones won't. Um, and again, just some other stuff. Blood cells become distorted in shape and clump together. Certain cells start producing so-called stress proteins, which are only produced when a cell senses that it is under threat. Again, that's probably going to relate to your nervous system as well. Some hormone production is too reduced, especially melatonin and serotonin, which again, are going to affect our sleep and circadian rhythm. Sperm cells become less mobile and fewer sperm are produced, hence a lot of the infertility that we have seen in the last 20 years. DNA repair processes within the cells work less effectively. So again, goes back to mitochondrial function. Again, you can kind of read through this. I'll put the links and everything. But at the end of the day, it's Basically, the way I see it, it's kind of frying our DNA in our cells, and you got to be on guard against it, and especially a lot of the oxidative stress that you're getting from EMF is going to cause problems, and it kind of messes with the frequency of your consciousness, and that's something I'll probably get into more in the future, but just wanted to give a quick breakdown if for any reason you had doubts that EMF was bad for you or not. Okay, lastly, let's talk about some fractional reserve banking. Maybe you've heard of that, maybe you haven't, and what I wanted to do was just kind of open your eyes into what fractional reserve banking is, how it works. A lot of people go through life and they never understand how money works. And you shouldn't worship money. Money shouldn't be your primary focus. Things you should be primarily focused on serving people. And I think truly, if you help other people become wealthy, you will become wealthy. But I want to talk about fractional reserve banking because the way money works, just a lot of people don't understand how money works in our system. So I have background in finance. I could talk about this stuff all day. I love reading about it. I know it's not the most exciting thing, but I wanted to try to condense this into something that you can take away. And again, this is about making you the healthiest and higher performing version of yourself. And money is how you allocate your resources. So let's jump on into it. Fractional reserve banking is a system in which only a fraction of bank deposits are backed by actual cash on hand and available for withdrawal. This is done to theoretically expand the economy by freeing capital for lending. So what does it mean? Banks are required to keep on hand a certain amount of cash that depositors give them, but banks are not required to keep the entire amount on hand. So most banks are required to keep 10% of the deposit referred to as reserves. So some banks are exempt from holding reserve, but all banks are paid a rate of interest on reserve. So let me just try to simplify this as much as possible. You have 10 people. They all go give a bank $1,000. The bank now has $10,000 in the bank on deposit, right? Makes sense, okay, the bank has $10,000. We all have our money in the bank. Well, what the bank can do is actually take that $10,000 and it can go loan out, in many cases more, but in this case, what here it says on Investopedia, 10% of deposit. So imagine that the bank is just a person for a second. So you have a person, you go give them $1,000, 10 of your friends, nine of your friends do, the person has $10,000. Well, while you're supposed to be getting interest on that, that bank is actually loaning that money out at a higher rate of interest because they have the authority by the government to do so. And they're actually loaning out $9,000 of that $10,000 to other people and earning money on that money. 
So the way that a bank works in principle, I'm not saying banks are bad, people that work at banks are bad. This is just the nature of the financial system as it exists today. A bank takes the money, loans it out to other people at a higher rate of interest than you are getting on your savings or whatever. So they are making money on your money that you worked to get. So you work for your money, you put it in the bank, the bank turns around, loans out most of that money because they don't have to keep all of that in the bank. So they're making money on the money that you put into the bank. Now, why is that bad? So let's get into it a little bit. Go down here. So fractional reserve banking has pros and cons and permits the bank to use funds, the bulk of deposits that would be otherwise unused to generate returns in the form of interest rates on loans. So you can have the good side of it that that money is going into the economy and it's helping people fund small businesses and stuff like that. However, as you and I know, that's not always the case. Um, but anyway, that would be otherwise unused to generate returns in the form of interest rates on loans and make more money available to grow the economy. It, however, could catch a bank in short-term in the self-perpetuating panic of a bank run. So many U.S. banks were forced to shut down during the Great Depression because too many customers attempted to withdraw the assets at the same time. So what happened? All of the people went into got went to get their money out of the bank because they had declining faith in the U.S. financial and economic system, and the banks didn't have it. When the banks didn't have it, who suffers? The people that had their money deposited at the banks. And I'm not saying I have, you know, I have my money in a bank. It's kind of how everything works, but you need to understand this. This is how the system works and how to guard on against it. And if I can get anything, if you get anything from this, understand how to control, like you should be in control of your finances. You shouldn't leave that to other people. You should take what you need to learn and learn that with your finances. I really think everybody should do that regardless of whatever your profession is, because when you turn it over to somebody else, this is what you're dealing with. You're not understanding how banks work at a level. You don't understand what can happen if things were to go wrong. So again, this is not how money is actually created, but only a way to represent the possible impact of the fractional reserve on the money plot, on these, on, on the money plot. So as such, while it's useful for economics, professors generally regard it as an over simplification by policy makers. So again, that's just fractional reserve banking on a very surface level. But if you want to get into it more, look into how the Federal Reserve works, how much of the Federal Reserve kind of keeps people in a form of indentured servitude because money, when you look at it, is not necessarily real. It's something that was created by our government and we all have faith in that because the government has police power. So we abide by that, and then we work for it. But understand that the work that you're doing is for money, and when you're giving it back to a bank, it is getting loaned out at a higher rate of interest. So understand that, and if anything, take control of your finances, and if you want to learn more about this, I can definitely talk about it more, um, but understand how the Federal Reserve works, understand how money is created. The Federal Reserve prints money to the banks, and then they loan that out. So they're making money on stuff that wasn't on their, their source of profits is the difference between interest rates in which they loan it out in which they keep it for people on deposit. So anyway, that was just a kind of brief overview of it. And that is going to be it for today. So hopefully you guys enjoy that. Again, if you want to talk more about this, go to the Facebook group. That's where a lot of the discussion is going to be going on. And let me know what you think. Let me know if you like this or not going forward. So anyway, talk to you guys soon. Peace.